Hello and a very warm welcome back to The Shit Show, also known as Widowed AF. Joining me, your host, Rosie Gilmoss, today is Julia. Hello, Julia, and thank you for coming on the show. Hello, thank you for the chance to speak, to tell my story. That's okay. Yeah. We were just having a chat before we came on mic, and um, I was sort of explaining, as I do to my guests, that uh, this is not Paxman-type interview. It's meant to feel like the two friends having a chat, and... It's also kind of twofold. It's meant to give you the opportunity to tell your story in a way that you perhaps have never been able to. Um, and also, in every single story, somebody out there is going to find a, uh, a, a recognised thing. <laughs> or, or, and you know, and I know, that feeling like that isolated troll is so lonely. So I know you're here because your partner died. Um, uh-huh. So I'm going to let you... I'm going to let you tell your story in your own words. And I, as I said to you before, I will make notes and, and we'll have a little discussion as well. But now, Julia, in your own words, tell me tell me how you got here. Okay, so I had met my husband, Tom, uh, in 2014. He, I'm not from the UK and he was visiting uh, my home country. Uh, and uh, back then he was recently divorced and we got um, an instant connection, I would say. Uh, we felt extremely comfortable. It was like we we knew each other for ages already. And, uh, of course, uh, he went back to UK and then he wanted to really be in a relationship with me. So he went back to, to visit me some few times. And then on the following year, uh, May of the following year, he decided to to move to where I lived, and he got a student visa, and we started to live together. Very few months after we, we first met, and we we lived together for under a year, and I would say that it was a. I, I used to have a joke that was a test drive for me and him. So we were like, "Yay, we passed the test." And so yeah. after we got a uh, small lottery, not, not too small lottery prize, uh, we, we thought that's a sign and we decided to get married. So, well, you know, sign. Yeah. <laughs> so we got that money that back then it would be the equivalent of maybe 35,000 pounds or something like that. So we not too shabby. Yeah. <laughs> so. We used part of the money to pay the marriage, and then we put the rest uh, in the investment. Uh, so, you know, perfect marriage, perfect honeymoon, life was good. I was living a fairy tale, basically. It was the best. I recognize that. Uh, yeah. So, yeah, it was absolutely the best time of my life. Uh, everyone that had known me before, they said, we never saw you so happy as you are and uh, everyone was like you two are the happiest couple uh, we had ever seen and uh, I, I, I had a story of very bad relationships in the past so um, yeah so I was we were really happy and uh, I then on the following year uh, the pregnancy that Doctors had told me you won't be able to get pregnant. It happened. And <laughs> yeah. So by then, uh, my husband was already fluent in my language. 
And uh, but then I had a pregnancy disease that uh, it had to. My baby had to be a premature one. I was just uh, I had to go through an emergency section um, because if if we they would wait more, they said we cannot guarantee that any of you two will be alive. So at some point, it was, was really my husband that became a widow. <laughs> so. Yeah. And was yes. it a preeclampsia or something like that? No, it was HELP syndrome. That they say that it's even worse than than that. Uh, so yeah, um, so uh, emergency C-section. I went to the intensive care, baby in the intensive care. About about okay. That, that was a hard uh, hard at the beginning, but we made it. So took baby home. Okay, back to the fairy tale. And we were perfectly happy. And when uh, our son was nine months old, I realized that there was something wrong with my husband and I couldn't really tell what it was. And I kept asking him, are you okay? And he was like, yeah. And he started to get angry at me at some point because I was constantly asking that. And he was like, why are you expecting some, a different answer? And he said, I'm, I'm telling you, I'm fine. And, but then after maybe, I don't know how long, two weeks maybe, uh, one day he told me, I think you're right. There, I think there's something that is not quite right with me. Because what he mentioned was that he was having, you know, it was some very unspecific signs. Uh, more or less like he, uh, he was having a, he was going to have a flu, but the flu symptoms did not develop at all. And I was like, okay, so uh, let's book an appointment with the GP or so. And uh, we went privately because um, uh, he didn't have, um, how can you say, it? Yeah, health insurance there, uh, here. Mm -hmm. Sorry. Yeah. And we have the public health system there, but it's extremely slow. So we were like, uh, mm -hmm. it's even slower than the NHS. Yes. Just so you know. And... Uh, uh, we went privately. We went to the, the doctor, and the doctor was like, uh, "Okay." Even the doctor wasn't taking it seriously. Uh, mm -hmm. And then, then the doctor said, uh, "Okay, uh, when was last time you had done a checkup? Was that over a year ago?" Yeah. So, and then she asked all sorts of accents, like, "As we are going to pay." So, you know, all sorts of blood tests, urine tests. And then she said, you know what? I'm going to ask uh, an ultrasound as well, just in case. And ended up that all his blood tests were normal. But that ultrasound, just in case, showed the tennis ball-sized tumor in his liver. Sorry, say the size again? Tennis uh, ball. Tennis ball, yeah. Did you oh, wow, okay. Yeah, so... Goodness me. Liver's yeah. not good, is it? No, and, uh, and, you know, he went to the, the ultrasound and back there we, when you could get, you could get the result right away. They would hand to you uh, the result, not like here that they, they kept on the computer and then you had to read the, anyway. And then he came back home uh, when he was living there. He sent me a message saying, uh, everything is done. Uh, there is something in my liver, but I already had it. I was like, okay. And then I saw that I, I had some, my professional background uh, is related to health. I don't work with that anymore, but 
I looked at that. I, I always been bad on, on seeing uh, ultrasounds, X-rays, stuff like that. But I was like, did you say that you had it already? And he said, yeah, I knew I had liver cysts. And I was like, okay, I can see liver cysts here, but what I'm seeing is not a cyst, it's a solid tumor. And he was like, you were telling me that you can see that because he knew that I wasn't good at that. Then I showed him and, you know, uh, then I just tried and to do you think he? Was... I said I wouldn't interrupt, but so that, do you think that he's kind of in denial? You know, this is just something I've always had. This isn't going to cause me any, any problems. No, no I, think, I think he wasn't aware, really, because he, he really had liver cysts. That's something that he knew that he had. But that was something else. That he wasn't aware, mm. uh, you know. And uh, then, I, you know, as I tried to speed up everything, so on the following day, I got a specialist appointment, uh, and the specialist said, "Well, we we cannot, we don't know what it is. So you have to go through lots of other uh, tests, and you know, it was we're being basically a lot of doctors and." labs all the time and just to make story short um that doctor said uh i think that it might be uh, cancer she she was telling that to me on the phone and uh, she said but i decided not to tell him that uh then she said i'm going to refer you to a friend of mine because even if that tumor was benign that would have to be removed because that was so big so between the time that we did that ultrasound and his operation was uh, 20 days as we were going privately. So we managed oh. to speed up everything. So they basically, they were going to remove the tumor and then send to biopsy to see what it was. And we were hopeful that it would, of course, be benign, but uh, we got the news that uh, it was a cancer. It was a bio duct cancer. That is a rare one happens on only 3% of the digestive cancers. You're my first. Sorry? You're my first. <laughs> yeah. You're my first file. So, and uh, one of the issues, not only with this cancer, but all sorts of liver diseases, that when it starts to get, give symptoms, uh, it's already advanced. The, and But we were hopeful because the only chance of someone getting cured of this cancer is getting operated and chemo after. So our hope was that the, the cancer didn't spread anywhere else and all the tests we had done before, it didn't show other tumors anywhere else in his body. But on the operation, they removed the local lymph nodes and it showed that he had um, extremely small metastasis, like less than one millimeter on his local lymph nodes. So it already had spread. Out of the liver, but anyway, we were just hoping that it, it had stayed there and it, everything was removed. He went through chemo, and he he had a quali good quality of life. He had uh, while he was in the chemo, he was fine. If you would look at him, you would not believe that he had was fighting against that. And during that time, uh, we started to work on the documents for my visa because moving to the UK was an idea we already had that we only didn't get her here earlier because the cancer postponed a bit our plans. So by the end of the year 2018, uh, we got the news that he was in remission. 
they could not see any cancer on, on his tests, on his exams, his scans, etc. Uh, I got my visa on the following day, so it always sounded brilliant to us, like a new life, you know, and we moved uh, over here. And uh, as soon as we moved here, so, so the following checkups were going to be done here. So as soon as we moved here, he started to complain about some pain in his hips, but he wasn't exactly uh, a young person. Uh, he was not old. He, he was considered... Old? Sorry? How old was he? How old was he? Uh, when, when he died, he was 57. He was uh, about 18 okay. years older than me, more or less. So... Um, he was complaining about something, um, his hips, and uh, we were just thinking, that's age, you know. Uh, even though he was considerably older than me, for example, his back was a lot better than mine. And I was like, it seems that I am the old pers older person here. <laughs> so, yeah, uh, we, we didn't overthink much about that. Uh, I was thinking, how the hell, you know, if it would be something related to the cancer, I, I, I didn't think that something that would flatten the liver would give some hip pains. But the thing is that he went through the first CT scan and then on the first one here, they showed that the cancer was back. And this time uh, we could not, uh, there was not, it was not, uh, he couldn't go through an operation. So the only uh, option would be chemo. And he, he started the chemo and likely the other one, this chemo really uh, didn't make him very good. He was having lots of symptoms. He was a little bit, not a little bit, a lot more tired. And, but at some point we were still hopeful because in the middle of the treatment, uh, it was shown, the, the, the tests showed that the tumors had reduced. But after a while, we, I noticed that he was getting uh, more and more tired, more, you know, struggling. And then when it was by October, more or less, of 2019, uh, the doctor, he went through a CT scan and then on the following appointment, the doctor said, um, the chemo is not working anymore. So when they said, oh, we have another option of chemo, but this one only works on 10% of the patients. And of course, we were expecting that he was part of that, but he was part of the 90%. And uh, he had signed to join a clinical trial that I had heard that this clinical trial is giving good results to people. But he didn't make it to the time that uh, the trial started. So when we realized that the end was near, we brought my mom over here to help me. Uh, during the time, he was eventually transferred to a hospice. And, and yeah, so at some, then we had an appointment and the, 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 the normal oncology appointment and the doctor just said, I think I, I want to hospitalize you to do another CT scan to see in which condition you are because he could not walk anymore. And he was a very strong, independent man. And to see him in the way he was, it was, Truly really heartbreaking. Uh, sometimes he would say, um, I, I, I don't know how I didn't, I, I managed not to cry. Like he wanted to interact with our son, but he couldn't even lift uh, him. And back then 
when he died, uh, our son was two and a half years old. And mm. yeah, so uh, I was, when I was going with him to the hospital, I was basically, he was basically in the wheelchair and it was me uh, taking him everywhere. So he was hospitalized and uh, yeah, they confirmed that uh, if they would try another chemo, the chemo would kill him uh, faster than the cancer, basically. So then he's, he had to be under morphine all the time. He, I don't know at which point it was the cancer or the morphine, but he started to lose his mind. And I, I was talking to him just like I used to talk with my old aunt that had Alzheimer. And, and then uh, one day I went to the hospice. I looked at him and I saw that's the last time I'm going to see him alive. So saying goodbye to him was really painful to me on that day. And then on the following morning, uh, I woke, I was having a very weird dream and I woke up, you know, scared with my chest was tight, you know, and five minutes later the phone rang and I already knew that uh, I answered the phone. Oh, he is from the hospice. And it was like, he died. Yeah. So. Anyway, I'm so sorry. Yeah, thank you. And and the the, the thing was that um, on the anniversary of the first the day that was the, the our first anniversary of being in the UK, instead of us being celebrating, I was in the funeral agent with my brother-in-law choosing a coffee. So uh, things were, were not easy. I. You know, I never expected that one day I was going to get married. I was not expecting that I would leave a fairy tale, but I even re- wasn't expecting that I was going to become widow at 38 years old with a small child. And so, okay, uh, we had a funeral and uh, seeing the, my husband summarized to a coffin was the second worst side of my life because my the worst was to see his lifeless body on the the bed of the hospice um so yeah the 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 funeral was uh, i would say that it was a beautiful ceremony my mother doesn't speak english she was there and she said even though i didn't understand the words i thought it was a very beautiful one uh the celebrant uh read at the end the text i wrote and she started to cry on the on the, the the ceremony and and uh, yeah and then on the following day of the funeral we had the first case of covid in the uk so i i was like at some point i knew that only a miracle could have saved uh, my husband and i know that miracles don't really happen <laughs> and i was like at some point, it was a relief to know that he he passed before the pandemic, so he did not leave all the craziness that we we didn't have the experience of everything. So, yeah, and then okay, uh, what I'm going to do because I now I, I get on the other part because apart from apart from the fact only that I lost the love of my life, I was in a country that. Uh, I, I I had to learn how to live here alone. I've never been here. We had that conversation before when he was alive. 
what I was going to do when he would die and if I would like to go back uh, to live near my parents or stay here. And I decided to stay here because uh, even though I wouldn't have the support network uh, that I would have, uh, it, it's the, my, my home country is not a good place to raise a child uh, at the moment. Um, here, even though the NHS might have the flaws, public health, uh, yeah, so the public schools uh, might not be, you know, perfect, but they are still a lot better than they are in my home country. And for me to get the same quality of those things over there, I would have to go private, and I cannot afford that. My son is British, so I was like, if I have the chance to give him a better future, so why not? I know, yeah, I know it was going to be difficult for me, but uh, anyway, so uh, I am here without a support network, basically. And not only that, I was on my spouse visa. I wasn't uh, settled in the UK back then. And that was a nightmare because for me to grieve under a spouse visa was uh, horrible in the sense of that I was at a point that I did not know to who ask information. So sometimes you're going to ask information to some people and some people, they don't know the answer, but instead they just say, I'm, I don't know, I'm sorry, and or just keep quiet. They say what they think it is. And most yeah. of the times that information is wrong. And even though sometimes I knew, like, I'm sorry for my language, like you are talking bullshit, that would <laughs> boost my anxiety, you know. So one of the things at least that I was a lot more calm about that, the biggest worry of Tom was that I would, even though we decided to, I, I told him, I, I will stay in the UK. Uh, his biggest worry was that I would not be able to be here and I would have to go back. Uh, but we, I found out that uh, uh, everyone that is under spouse visa, if the partner, the British partner dies in the middle of the visa, you don't need to wait the five years process for the indefinite leave to remain. You can apply straight away after the death. So that was a big relief for him that it could be done. Uh, I also wouldn't need to go through all the other uh, things they ask, like proof of money, uh, that uh, they raised. I heard that they raised the price now. It's even more expensive. So, um, so yeah, I, I got all the documents I could. Then I, I was like, I was less than a week briefed and I was like, I'm going to the citizen advice to, uh, you know, ask an advice of what I can do if my documents are right. And I meant, I told them uh, it's related to immigration. I don't know if someone there can help. And yeah, I went there. And the, the thing is, again, I, I got the, the person that was talking to me. She didn't know anything about immigration. So she was talking to things that she guessed. And I went there, I left there, you know, thinking my life is ruined. You know, I, I think at that moment, if I didn't have a son, I didn't have a child, I would, th I would think with myself, I think I would take my life away because what the fuck? You know, she said basically, uh, 
that I I would have to apply for for the settlement for my son as well. It was like, no, my my son is British. He has a British passport. She said, no, I know that, but he wasn't born here. And then she said, many years ago, I I also wasn't born here. Things were not straightforward, so you have to pay for his application. That those applications are expensive, and you are you know recently bereaved. You don't know. You are short on money. Everything. So, and to make things worse, she told me that the the pension of my husband was not going for me, and but it would go to his ex. And I was like, what? Yeah, it doesn't make sense. And I was like, but why? I am the one married this guy. And she said, I know that, but that's the law. And I was like, you know, he made, even though he contacted the, whatever is the pension, you know, they, they he had contacted mm-hmm. them to, and made a document saying, uh, when I pass away, that is going to my wife. Uh, on his will, he put that. That his pension was coming to his wife. That was me. And I was like, so, but he changed the documents when he divorced. And he said, no, uh, it goes to her because it was with her that he lived. Uh, he was married with her for longer than with you. Okay. And I was like, I was like, uh, how I was, how is that fair? You know, because uh, he had kids on his first marriage, and but they were adults already, you know. And I was like, so. The law, you're telling me that the law will give the, the pension to someone he did not want to live with. Because if you divorce the person, that's because you don't want to be with, with that. And the, the wishes of the person are not considered. And she said, I know that's frustrating, but that's the law. And it was Goodness like, me. yeah, so, you know, I, I've been paranoid for a long time. Like, what I'm going to do? And uh, another thing, we didn't apply for child benefit when we came here. Because my, my husband made a confusion. He thought that we couldn't, but of course we could. But anyway, and I was reading that there are some exceptions on the rule. There is an exception on the spouse visa. That is complicated. I'm not going to get into that, but I, I called them to talk about that. And I was like, I would like to apply to the child benefit. And my child is British. My I am not. British. I am uh, an immigrant, and my husband was British, but he passed away. So I would like to get information on what they should do. And then, uh, yeah, and then the the person said, okay, hang on. Like, then five minutes listening to music, the guy came back. So just to confirm, uh, your, your husband is British, your son is British, but you are not. I was like, yeah. But the thing is that my husband passed away. Uh, okay, so, you know, more 10 minutes listening to music. Then he came back. Okay, as you are not British and your husband is, so it's better your husband apply to the child benefit. Oh, and it was like, <laughs> yeah, but he died. Oh, I'm sorry. And then, fine. And then he said, yeah, okay, your case is not straightforward, so... Uh, I will send something to post. You send lots of documents, blah, 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 etc. It's do a letter. Send to them. And fine. And then uh, after a while, I got a letter from them saying uh, you are not uh, eligible for child benefit because you are still uh, subject to immigration. And I was like, okay. Then on the following day, 
I got a letter from uh, related to the bereavement support payment saying, because so far I was getting just 100 pounds. And they said, as you are eligible for child benefits, you were going to raise the payment. Oh. And I was like, listen, I am eligible or not. Then I called to the ethnic minority law center. Uh, that someone gave me the phone number and they, they said, um, because when I called them there first, they said, oh, no, you can apply to, for the child benefit. And that's why I tried to, to apply. So I called there and they said, look, explain the situation. Okay. I'm going to pass your, your transfer your call to an advisor. And then that advisor, uh, was, I, I explained the situation and the guy said, uh, what is written on your uh, BRP, that's the biometric residence permit? Is it written uh, no public funds? I was like, yeah. Okay, so you couldn't have applied for a child benefit or the bereavement support payment. So you were going to, you, did you get any payment at all? I was like, yeah, I got some payments of the bereavement support payment. So you have to return that money if your intention is to stay in the country. So, okay. And I was like, Fine. Then I called them. First, I called about uh, to talk about the child benefit, and I was like, "If I am not eligible, why did I get that letter from?" You know, relate the mm -hmm. other letter. The person was like, um, "I don't know. Maybe something changed." Uh, you know, I could see clearly the person had no idea what they're talking about, and she said, "You better call the home office." And I was like, "It's easy to call to the home office." Fine. Then I called to the. Department of Work and Pension, and they explained all the situation. And then that person was helpful. Uh, she said, uh, look, I don't understand. <laughs> and she said, look, I don't understand about immigration, but I am just going to say uh, what I, what I, I think is right. Uh, she said, first of all, even though um, you are not settled in the UK, we know that you have a child. Uh, it's pandemic. It's a hard time for everyone. So we yeah, helping you, basically. Like, don't remember her words. And then she said, and... Sorry? Uh, Sorry? I'm just writing down the words help you because it's horrible. You feel like you're opening doors or you're knocking at doors and you're begging and everybody's just saying, oh, no, go to that door, go to that door, go to that door. Yeah. And as you were talking, I, I guess of the nature of how Ben died. I mean, it's a very different circumstance because I'm a British national, but um, because of the nature of how he died, I um, I had to repeat myself. People kept saying to me, well, we can't do anything without a death certificate. So I'm still paying out car payments, mortgage payments, yeah. things in his name. And in I, I do some public speaking on grief. And um, in one of my presentations, an analogy I use is that it is, it is like being dropped into a foreign country with no money, no phone, no um, translator, um, and that literally continue. So I cannot imagine how frightened, how helpless, and how lost you must have felt, because I know how I felt, and it's my home country. And I am, yeah, it's made me go all kind of tingly, and I, it, yeah, it sounds absolutely terrifying. And then just... It's finally have one person say we'll help you. What you know, you I bet you wanted to hug them, didn't you? <clears throat> Excuse me. Yeah. So uh and 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 then she she said, uh also I don't see a reason why you shouldn't receive 
the, the bereavement support payment because uh, that uh, is related to the national insurance number of your husband. So anyway, and then, you know, I went to just search on internet everywhere else and bereavement support payment is not considered a public fund. So to anyone that's listening to that and it's a situation similar of mine, don't fall on that bullshit. Uh, you can get the bereavement support. Thing. And actually, they've now allowed you to backdate it if you weren't married at the time, um, so you can claim the children. But it's interesting you say this because um, I was talking to somebody and I just claimed my benefits, my uh, bereavement payment, because mine was uh -huh. delayed due to the lack of um, And I mentioned it to somebody. I, did, I didn't know that well. It was a dad at school. He went, and I said, oh, I'm going to take the kids on holiday, I think. They need a holiday. And he went, oh, I'm sure the taxpayer's thrilled. And in that moment, I didn't react. But of course, you, you're very clever after the event. And I thought, hang on a minute, that was my husband's national insurance contributions. He paid high level tax and contributions, and he died at 42. Like, he never used those contributions. He never had medical treatment. And I think, hold up. Like, people are so judgmental. And, and I think people yeah. do feel that you will be left with life insurance and the government will hold you up. And actually, that isn't true. It isn't. Not in every case. Some people, maybe. Uh -huh. but. Yeah, so... Uh, so just what did you... Through. Sorry? So what did you do? How did you manage? Um, I'm just sort of talking talking like the uh, the practicalities, really. Were you able to stay in your home? Yeah, yeah. The Tom had owned this flat where we lived. So mm -hmm. I, that is something that I didn't have to worry about. I used to say that uh, during the pandemic, even though... Um, you know, I was in all that shitty situation. I know that I was in a much better place than many families here in the UK that, you know, lost jobs. And I I still had some... Yeah, anyway. And uh, fortunately, of course, that woman from the citizen advice was wrong because I am getting the, the, the pension of my husband. It came quite quick, what which was good. Oh, yeah, so you so, were eligible. Yeah, of course. I, I, I you know, I, I, but I, I, I consider if I should go back there and report that person to, you know, to had made me feel that crap, you know, because if she didn't know what she was talking about, she shouldn't be there giving advice at all. So Do you know I, what? I'm writing this down. It's a really important message that we get out here because. If you don't know, don't be afraid to say you don't know. Do yeah. not guess. Do not give the wrong information because you are playing God with people's lives in this situation. And it, 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 quite often I'm asked something and I will honestly just say, I don't know. I don't know. I can find out and come back to you, but I, uh, on the spot now, I don't know. And there's no shame in that, is there? But for some reason, people feel they have to make something up and it just makes everything so much more complicated. Yeah. And that's something that I was going to touch on that uh, in a few, but as you mentioned that, there is one big struggle we had in this country for another reasons, but also cultural differences that British people, I won't say everyone, but many of them, they have that way that they, they say yes when they actually want to say no and they want you to mind read and understand what they talking and things are not that clear for me so you know that thing that people say oh we should have a coffee and well in my mind I was like 
we should have a copy. And they mean something completely different. And, you know, and I know, for example, there is uh, uh, some people from my nationality that I had met here that they complain about exactly about the same thing. And people from other nationalities, they complain about that. And uh, that's something that makes things a bit harder for me as well. Uh, even though I am a lot more used now, I can read people better. That that was not straightforward for me because uh, Tom, he was a crystal clear person. He was uh, he was not a t- very typical British at this point. So when he was saying no, he really mean no. <laughs> and but but yeah, so I I managed to you know get uh, documents. I got I, I struggled to get some, but I got all the documents that the Home Office required, and it was about a year after uh, Tom died, I applied for mine definitely to remain. And I had no problem. You know, uh, they said that uh, in six months they I would get an answer, but I actually got in three months. So it was, I felt like they removed like a whole load of weight from my back. I was like, okay, I am still struggling, but now I, I am struggling less. I may, um, I would, if it's not too painful, I'd like to kind of talk about your son a little because yeah. losing a parent two and a half, they are aware of <laughs> something's happened and they you can talk to them in sort of age-appropriate language. Now, my daughter was six months, so I couldn't really talk to her about it at the time, but I do now. Um, and then my other children are a bit older, so I don't have any direct experience of a toddler losing a parent. And I wondered if you could talk a little bit about how that was. Yeah, I I could, but again, uh, my experience was not a typical one because, uh, well, uh, our son was born abroad. He wasn't born here. And while we were there, uh, Tom used to speak in my language there all the time. So he was he was listening to one language and he was starting to develop his speech normally. When we moved here to the UK, he was one year and a half and we noticed that he had the first speech delay but we thought that it was just because he was listening to two languages. But at some point we were, we were much worried about that because uh, my husband was a bilingual child and he... Isn't it? Yeah, he, he had speech delay as well. So, But then he became two years old and the speech wasn't coming. So I contacted the help visitor and uh, got an appointment for the speech and language. And by the time that Tom passed away, he was still nonverbal. And so, you know, I, I tried to... People were all the time telling me to... to Basically, don't talk like a British, be, be crystal clear. Like, don't say, Tom uh, passed away, dad went to heaven. They said, you have to say, dad was ill, dad died. And uh, that's pretty much what he did. But he was non-verbal, so I couldn't know uh, how much of that he understood. The thing is that uh, because of the pandemic, speech and language therapist, everything got the middle Everyone got locked inside home. I had realized that as uh, when Tom was uh, getting poorly, our son was getting more silent. By the time that Tom died, 
my, my son always being a fuss eater, but by the time the Tom died, he stopped eating. Uh, he would try to eat, eat stuff, but, uh, new foods, and he, he just kept eating the safe food. And I was at some point that I was already desperate. I did not know what to do. So I, I joined the Facebook group. Uh, I joined the Facebook group and uh, I, I just wrote there asking for advice, what, what I was going to do uh, to help my son to eat, basically. And then I, I mentioned some things like <clears throat> he stick to the same sort of food. He was only going to drink juice from one specific cup and then someone asked. Is your son autistic? And I was like, I don't know. I didn't know anything about autism back then. And, you know, that was like, hmm, I'm going to, to look for that. And I started reading about autism. And then I was like, well, yeah, okay, my son fits in lots of that. But hang on a minute. I am like that as well. And then the more <laughs> I started reading, more I would see myself. In that, And there were some things that my son was doing when he was a child that my mother, when she was still here, she mentioned to me that she always been worried about me when I was a child. Because usually when children are going to play with the toys, they are like, they have dinosaurs in their hand and they were like, rah, you know, doing their voices. And she said that I was always silent. It was always quiet playing. And my son was doing exactly the same thing. And anyway, to make story short, I, I asked the health minister, I think, uh, I want to investigate that. And my son went through an assessment and he was diagnosed. He is autistic. Today, he is going to be seven years old uh, this year. He is still nonverbal and he is still wearing nappies. I could not uh, toilet train uh, him yet. Uh, even though he doesn't speak, he understands both languages, both English and Portuguese. Um, Sometimes he decides to ignore both, of course, that any, any child will do. And, but if people ask me, uh, you know, what, what does he think about uh, his father? I don't have a definite answer. I don't know because he doesn't tell me. I know, and that's extremely difficult for me. Sometimes for me, it's obvious that he's, I know he has a memory of home for sure. Because when Tom died, uh, I thought to myself, because I, I have memories of when I was two years old. So, but they, they are not, you know, not as much as, you know. And I, I thought to myself, I'm going to spread lots of photos of Tom around the house. So he will keep looking and he won't forget uh, his face. So many times I see that he is staring at the photos, uh, you know, and one thing that my son doesn't do, and as you have an autistic child, you might know, he, when he wants something, he doesn't point at the things. He will get my hand and, and take my hand okay. to whatever he wants. The only thing that he points is to photos. Because I, I was all the time. I would get him in my arms and I would point to our photos and I would say his nickname. I would say mommy, daddy in, in my language. And uh, he, he rarely, rarely says those words but what he used to do he would point at the, at the photo and he would look at me expecting me to say that and one day uh he decided he, he realized that he likes to make drawings fine and drawing on my wall 
So oh, I was yeah. like, I was like, you know what? I need to redecorate this flat. He's happy. I'm He's exhausted. Down. I am. <laughs> yeah, I was like, I am overwhelmed. So fine. And I just let him. And right below one of the picture frames uh, we have, he made a drawing that I, I can send later uh, to you to see. Mm -hmm. Very childish drawing that you could see that are three people. One small, one medium, and one big. The small and the medium, they are look to the, looking to the big one, and the big one is, is looking to the other two. And he was uh, looking, so he made a drawing, and he was starting a drawing, and he said, I saw that he was happy that he made the drawing. And then I was like, uh, who are they? And of course, he didn't say who were. And, and then he pointed at the, the, the drawing he made, just like when he pointed to the picture, and he looked at me. And it was like, I think he wants me to, to say that. And, and then I said his nickname when he pointed to the small one. I said mommy when he pointed to the medium one, daddy when he pointed to the big and when. I say, so, uh, said that to him. He was so happy. And he was jumping and, and laughing. It was just like, yay, she, she got it. And then he was like this, looking to the drawing, looking to the picture. And then he was like for five minutes saying his nickname, Mommy and Daddy. And Out of have you watched the um, Chris Packham series where he um, interviews autistic people? And one yet. of them is... Um, he's completely nonverbal and he communicates via computer. But what I found so fascinating is this assumption that if somebody cannot talk or articulate their thoughts, that they don't have them. And I'm also guilty of knowing nothing about autism until my son was diagnosed. I knew it existed, um, but I thought they would line up their cards. You know, that's no eye contact. And Hector presents differently. He, he presents quite typically autistic, but not in that way. And um, uh -huh. I, as soon as the uh, the doctor said to me, oh, he's autistic. And I was like, what? Surely not. And then like you, I went to and did my research and I've since been diagnosed and my youngest is in the process. So it's, uh -huh. it's very, scary. and I, I don't, I just think it's so important for people to understand that autistic children and adults, we can't always articulate how we feel and we might not show yeah. how we feel. It's very frustrating to argue with somebody who's autistic, isn't it, right? Because we can't, we'll just shut down. And, but what's going on inside is often we feel things more than neurotypicals. Um, yeah. And Victor too, he, he, he became very, um, he was like a wild animal. He just uh, hid under, t like a cornered, caged animal. Um, and a lot of, we've, I've worked very hard and he's, he's coming on. His speech did suddenly just come on when he started school. So I, 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 could, I can't relate on that sense, but I did also have the speech and language. In fact, uh -huh. they came around and um, were asking him some very basic words and he just sort of went, alligator. And I was uh -huh. like, you can talk the whole time. <laughs> but, yeah, you know, uh, my yeah. son, sometimes he, he knows the words, but it, it, for whatever reason, he, he just, don't say them like rarely he will have you know something out of the blue like he was one day going behind the tv and i was telling him get out of there you cannot go there and then he would leave like one i would turn my back to him and he would go there straight again and he would do that again and again and again and then at some point i told him you can you are not supposed to be to go there why are you doing that 
you, you cannot go there. And then he said, and I was telling that to him in my language. And he answered me in English. I know. <laughs> and I was like, that if you know that, why do you do? And then he was just giggling and, you know. And then you realize, just like all little children, my friend actually, yeah. <clears throat> my daughter's school, um, she is, not, uh, well, I think ADHD actually, but she's um, she's not diagnosed or anything. It's a mainstream school. But it has mm -hmm. a attached school to it called the McGinty Speech and Language Centre. And one of my friend's children attends. And she was saying to me, like, how much she wanted to hear the word mummy. You know, she was so desperate. And then yeah, he learned yeah. the word mummy. <laughs> yeah, I, I, yeah, yeah I, I know exactly the feeling. Sometimes he will say the word mummy, but it, it, he's not looking at me and calling me. So, yeah, I, I, I get Does he show perfection? Oh, yeah. He, I would say that he is the sort of autistic that he's the cuddly one. Uh, he, he's very affectionate and yeah, he's a lovely boy, very clever and very cheeky as well. And one of the things that he definitely doesn't have that uh, one of the artistic traits might be a bit clumsy, if I said that mm -hmm. word correctly. He, he absolutely, his motor skills are excellent. Like one day, I'm uh, like a mountain goat. Uh, yeah, he would just like for, for climb. Mm. Exactly, yeah, and he's fast. So he he studies you, and he waits for that millisecond of distraction. And as soon as you get that millisecond of distraction, he will use that opportunity to do something. Like for example, he try he does that at home when I am the toilet, or when he was at the nursery. There was one day I was going there to pick him up, and there was a mother with one of the child that was from the same group of him. And the child said, uh, he went on the roof. And I was like, what? <laughs> and what happened was that, you know, the nursery staff looked away and he climbed the wall and he went on the roof, the shadow of the neighbor. Uh, another day, the... Sorry? Just out of curiosity, because I know we touched on benefits earlier, and I, it just popped into my head. It was because of the climbing on the roof thing, actually. Are, are you, do you get disability living allowance for him? Uh, yeah. 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 Good. I, it's only because a lot of people don't know that you can, because it's not means tested, um, but it is available if your child meets the threshold um, yeah. for, for support. Uh, and I, I found it very helpful when I was, you know, on my own and, and struggling financially. So I... You're, you're, you're on it, but I just, it popped into my head and uh, the ADHD was, does yeah. what the ADHD wants. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, I am, I am getting that. So, yeah, another day at the nursery, uh, I got there and they said that they had an inspection on that day and they were reproved on the inspection because they were going to take the kids out to have a walk on that day. And when the inspector asked something to the nursery staff, nursery staff went going to answer the inspector. Look at away, and my son went to the door, front door, and left. So, yeah. So one day it was like three weeks ago. I woke up, uh, and I saw that he wasn't on bed. Usually, when that happens, I uh, I could hear that he was playing the tablet or doing something, and I was only here. I, I couldn't hear. Him. It was just silence. When I stood up, uh, he was ready to leave home. And the door was actually open. And, and he was looking like back, 
like, I'm going. And I told him, come back. And as soon as I said, come back, he run through the door. The good thing is that I live in a building that he had, he would have to open the door downstairs. I had to leave the way I was dressed, you know, and I was sleeping. So I was only with shirt and knickers on the cold. And I was glad that no, no neighbor was there. So I was like, I need to call a locksmith to change that because he learned how to open. And yeah. So anyway, uh, yeah. So uh, when we had the autism assessment, that's something that uh, people ask me if I am uh, uh, diagnosed. I say that I am more or less diagnosed because uh, the people, uh, the, the, all the, the doctors related to his diagnosis, when I went, took him there to the assessment, they were testing him for lots of things and noise, for example. There was a little bunny there that would do a high pitch noise. And my son was perfectly fine. And I was like, please turn it off. You know, and, and, and the doctors, you know, the, he says, Mom, are you overwhelmed? <laughs> yeah. And, and, you know, talking to, to the doctors there, they said, well, we cannot diagnose you, but by what we, we see, how you reacted here, how the things you talk about yourself, uh, I think there is a very high chance that uh, you are autistic. And my counselor, uh, she said she worked for, I think, 20 years only with autistic people. And she said, I cannot give a formal diagnosis, but yeah. <laughs> so uh, I am still on the waiting list. Uh, I think it has sorry. Well, clinical diagnosis. I have a non-clinical diagnosis because um, I, I don't require assistance or um, benefits or anything like that. I, I just did it because I wanted to know. For me, I have a, cl- yeah. a clinical ADHD diagnosis which I needed for the medication but I think there's just a there is a power in knowing I parent detector differently immediately Mm -hmm. even my parents who um, were living with me at the time my dad who's of a different generation he said he now views children having tantrums differently because they might be meltdowns and I think it knowledge is power, isn't it? You know, I have yeah. reams and reams of books on parenting autistic children, being an autistic adult. Um, sometimes I even open the books. Um, yeah. But it's the more you learn, the better parent you can be. And it sounds to me like you are a very, very dedicated mother who will do anything to support her son. And I think he's very lucky to have you. Thank you. I, I have the constant feeling that I... I am a failure many times. Oh, me, me too, but, all the time. I feel like I've let them down. I failed. Yeah, it, it, and you feel like the one job you have as a mother is to protect them, and we weren't able to do it. And uh, yeah. it's very difficult. It's very difficult. What, what does life look like for you now? May I ask? How how, how um, are you? Yeah, I I would say that uh, even though I don't have official diagnosis, knowing that improve. Uh, me a lot because I just feel that I am not a weirdo. Uh, I I am what I am. Uh, one of the things that I was worried was um, how can I take care of a autistic child if I am myself and weirdo. Uh, and but then the doctor told me something that I thought of myself. That's true. She said that in my case specifically, and you probably think that as well. Uh, it's good that we are uh, neurodivergent as, uh, as our child because uh, when they are struggling, we actually can understand them better. 
you don't try to force them into a situation that it, it will, we know that they will struggle. So uh, that's uh, one of the things. Uh, I still, I am rediscovering myself, basically. Uh, I am, I am, uh, that's something I wrote uh, yesterday, because coincidentally, not coincidentally, yesterday was my, my widowhood anniversary. So I wrote a text. I, uh, one of the ways I used to express myself is, even though I struggle with speaking, so when I write, I have my time to process everything, and everyone said, you write so beautifully, you should write a book. So I was writing a text to him, just like a letter <laughs> for him. And I said that after he died, uh, life became great for me. And now I am, I'm being able to slowly add some colors, but they, and I know that some other colors will come, but they won't be yeah. as vi vibrant as they used to be. And, uh, but something that uh, I still have to learn is that we are, we don't, we are vulnerable and being neurodivergent also make us struggle even more on that. I used to say that, uh, the widowhood and uh, being uh, autistic, they they both have some similarity that both are a masking game. Because people ask you, how are you? And you have to say, I'm fine, when you are not. So, and being autistic is the same thing because you have many times to force to be someone that you are not just to be able to cope with the Just to exist yes, in the world. And I think this, the reason I'm so passionate about early diagnosis is because I wasn't diagnosed until my 40s. So uh -huh. the support that I'm able to offer Hector and the, um, the knowledge and the empathy and the equity, you know, um, because his diet is very limited. So I have to kind of explain to the other children that, no, you can't just eat crisps. But it's, I, the earlier the diagnosis and the more you know, the kinder you, you become because I felt yeah. like I lived my life through a screen and I, and everybody I speak to who has been diagnosed later says the same thing. And so it's something I am quite passionate about. And I might be doing an offshoot uh, podcast on. So if you, um, maybe we'll talk a little about that later. Um, okay. But yes, it is, it is incredibly challenging. And, and to be autistic, to be a, a foreigner in another land and to have your husband die, I, you know, those are, I mean, talk about <clears throat> this triple threat, but you have, you're still here, you're still here, and you're putting your foot in, down on the floor every day and your head up high, and, and you are supporting a son with profound needs. And it's not easy, it's not easy. No matter how easy we can make it look, it's incredibly hard. And I just want, sometimes I just, I just want Ben, I just, I, I text him, my phone is full of texts because he would know what to do. Um, uh -huh. And it's really lonely when you lose your best friend and your other half. Yeah, yeah, it, it, it indeed is. I have, having to take decisions on, all on my own, and Tom used to say that I was terrible to take decisions, so it was usually him. Uh, oh, you know, awful. Uh, I'm, you know, I, I, just, I, I actually stood in the school playground on the day that Ben had died. I didn't know he had died at this point. And uh -huh. I said... Oh, yeah, if Ben dropped dead tomorrow, I have no idea how to pay the electric bill. I mean, there we are. And turns out I had no idea how to pay the electric bill, but I figured it out. We figure it out, right? Well, to be honest, I don't know how to pay an electric bill. The, the thing is that uh, Tom put uh, everything on the direct debt, so he didn't have to do anything about that. So <laughs> that's, that's one of the things. <laughs> 
Messy. <laughs> yeah. Well, Julia, unless you have anything that you would like to say or anything that you would like to, to talk about, um, I'm aware that I have I've, I've kind of pulled loads of information out of you today, so I don't want to, to kind of overdo it. Is there anything else that you wanted to talk about? Um, yeah, if, if we have time. <laughs> so yeah, we have time. Time to talk to my widows. Yeah, so I would just... I would just talk a little bit about vulnerability because um, one of the things that I don't know if it happens to you when, for example, I am on an Instagram and I started to follow a page about widowhood. Uh, right after I started to, I got, started to get lots of inbox messages or scammers, basically. Hi, you are beautiful. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that's one of the things. And when, even though you think that you might be very smart, you must. Sorry? They're always from Texas, have you noticed? <laughs> mm, yeah. So, yeah. And, uh, but even though we think, no, I am smart enough to not uh, let any toxic person get anywhere near you, uh, that might still happen. So there were some friendships that were, had a real bad impact uh, on me, I would say. So uh, one of them was a person that I thought it was a friend. Um, and one day that person was here and my son was sleepy. And then I said, uh, I'm going to take him to have a nap and then we can watch the film together and fine. And okay, when my son fell asleep, I came to the TV room and my computer was on and that person was in the toilet. And I was like, well, if the... As we're going to watch a movie, and it will turn off the computer. Because no point to, you know, electricity, you know. And then that person came, left to the toilet, and I was like, okay, let's watch a movie. And then, uh, did you turn off the computer? I was like, yeah. No, I was doing uploads. And I was like, what are you uploading? Uh, look at that, how that person was. And I couldn't see that at that point. The person said that he, uh, they were worried about that I could lose my documents. So to increase my safety, they were uploading my documents from the computer to their cloud. And, uh, you know, the good thing is that I don't save any documents on my documents folder. And that was what that person did. And I was like, let me see. And I saw, I started to laugh and I was like, you uploaded a whole load of crap that I don't want even on my computer. You know, that person didn't manage to get any important document for myself. But at that moment, I could not see that which, which intention that person had. Mm. Uh, and then uh, after a while, that person was telling me, Oh, I'm doing, I, I put my money in the stock market, started to say wonderful things about stock market. And then said, oh, wait, uh, would you like to try stock market? And it was like, no, nah, I won't. That's the sort of thing Tom wouldn't do. And then I won't as well. And they said, uh, no, but I can help you on that. And it was like, no, I'm fine. Thank you. And then they kept insisting, not wanting to ask how much you have in your bank account, but do you have at least 20,000 pounds? And I was like, I'm not going to. Yes. And the good thing was I was going through counseling back then. And even though I couldn't see, because for whatever reason, now it's obvious, of course, uh, that person alerted me. The, the counselor said, you know, 
go away. And then probably when they realized that I was not as vulnerable as they thought I was, you know, widow, immigrant, um, took distance. They, they started to gaslight me and I didn't see anymore. And then I, I was like, okay, so now I am uh, more immune to people that, you know, may cause me any harm. But no, then the few, some months later, I, I had to go through an operation. Um, it's a very simple operation. I had to get my gallbladder removed. Uh, even though I, I was telling the social work, I need help with my son. Because if I need, you know, it would be, an, I would come back home on the same day. But we never know. I could have to be hospitalized. And they were telling the social work, I need help with my son. And I started telling them that on February. My operation was in September. And like 10 days before the operation, they didn't get anyone to help. They didn't help me with that. And then when I messaged them, look, we are getting short of time. Because my intention was they would help me to get a foster care for that evening or for whatever, how much time I would, I would need. And so I would take my son there to get used with the people. And they just answered me, uh, sorry, we don't have anyone available. I know that they are short on carers and stuff. But I was like, I was telling them since February that uh, I, I, was, I, I need to go be operated. But anyway, then there were two people that I met here that were from the same nationality as mine. Uh, one of them, very nice people. But she couldn't, she could only stay during the one evening because her, unfortunately, she's also eligible to join this crap, uh, club we are because her husband is ill as well. And the other one is a solo mother that has an autistic child. So you would think that she's understand you. No. Uh, anyway, and uh, just to make story short, she, she was constantly coming here at home because she had to help me after my operation, which was great. But at the same time that she was helping me, she was belittling me all the time. Very con con condescending, that's the word. Yeah. So I, I really got stressed. Like a friend of mine said, she's the sort of person that will get to you. And she has a bouquet of flowers in one hand and a bomb on the other. So, and... <laughs> Uh, yeah, I, I, you know, I, I, that was, I was a living hell here. Then after operation, I started to feel pain on my back, went to the doctor, went to the hospital. I had chest infection and I had to be hospitalized for a week. And of course, my biggest worry was my son. When I went to the, and I was like, you know, we do everything. And then who is going to take care of my son? Because uh, even though there is the family of my late husband here, none of them lives near me. So there was no one that could really come here to give me the support I need. And, and when I went to the doctor complaining about back pain, I, I didn't think that I was going to be hospitalized. So I had called that friend of mine and I asked her, could you just be in my place just when he my son is going to be dropped from school? And she, yeah. And unfortunately, I didn't come back home. I had to be hospitalized. So I contacted the social worker and they said, I explained the situation. Because I, I, I didn't know if she, she could have my son because her, even though her son is already a teenager, but he's autistic. He has his needs as well. 
So I contact the social worker and explain the situation. Uh, my son is with her, but I don't know if she will be able to. So I really need your help. I'm not at home. I cannot go back home. And everything, you think that everything is all right. No, what, what starts to happen? That friend of mine, uh, I gave her phone number to my mom. So my mom could video call her and see uh, my son. Uh, she was angry that I contacted social work because uh, she said, your daughter doesn't trust me. My, my mother uh, told me that. And there were lots of other things like they said, no, you have to stay longer on the, the hospital. So I was like, I, I need people to, someone to bring some stuff for me. I didn't have toothbrush. I didn't have anything. So I called her and I asked her, could you please go to my place and take some stuff? And one of the things I asked was my tablet because I, I like to draw drawings away to control my grief, my mental sanity, you know, that's good for me, for my mental health. And I was very specific with lots of things and she, she didn't get the stuff I asked. She put things that I didn't ask, like she put a waterproof jacket on my bag and I was like, what am I going to do with a waterproof jacket inside a hospital? So, <laughs> and, and she did not, and I, I stressed a lot. Please, I want my tablet, my iPad. And she didn't put my iPad there. And then the other, and then it was the other person from my nationality that was going to take my stuff with me, for me. And then she said, I don't know her well, but I did not like how she was speaking about you. Like, uh, I, I asked her, no, she wants a tablet. And she said, no, she doesn't need a tablet. Why does she need a tablet? She has her mobile phone. And I was like, it's not that I asked her to, you know, I want uh, something, you know, very difficult. She literally just had to get the tablets and put inside the bed. And, you know, just not. You don't need your screen time limiting. Yeah. And, and other things like, you know, we were in the hospital, we were recovering. She was video calling me every hour. And they thought something happened to my son. And then I was going to answer the phone. No, she was just talking crap. Or saying, I'm not going to give the biscuits your son wants. And I was like, Give him the dance. Why not? Yeah, I was like, Why not? Because she said, In her mind, uh, I was happy that he, he, he was still on Apis. In her mind, it was me offering, you know, all the judgments that, you know, even though she had his autistic child, she was doing that crap to me. And, uh, you know, uh, I forgot, I, I got lost in my thoughts. Ah, yeah. So she called me one day and she said, Oh, I had to go to the supermarket to, to buy this person. I had to go to the supermarket. And she was all the time saying that. And it was like, Do you want me to do an order on Tesco here and deliver in your home? So you don't need to spend your money with, with my son. And she didn't want money. She didn't want, and she said, No, 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 no. That's okay. That's okay. Because she, she was the sort of person that. She wants to help you and throw that at your face. And no, doesn't need. And the following day, yeah. On the following day, what, what I knew from the other uh, friend of mine, she went to Tesco alone and she left my son alone at home with her son. And her son is that sort of autistic people that can be violent. Wow. Yeah. And how old was this? He he's fourteen years old, but he his mind he's not mature enough for fourteen years old. 
and he's I a big guy. <laughs> yeah, he's he's a very big guy, strong boy. That sometimes he beats up his own mom, and she she left him alone with my son, that is a six year old. And you know, I was really mad when I heard about that. And anyway, uh, and there are other lies after that. She, you know, like it doesn't it doesn't worth it to go through that here on the podcast. But, but it was just like thinking this shit situation you are because you really need help. I don't have uh, support here. Just like she doesn't have support as well. And instead of we helping each other, she was fucking in my mind, you know. And and actually, it's the thing. It's so difficult to ask for help, and it's really scary to ask for help as well because yeah. we want to be independent and we want to do this ourselves. But widowhood forces you into a place of vulnerability and yeah. you no longer have, as you described, you know, and actually I'm thinking of Lulu here because she has to have her gallbladder removed. She's been, it's been cancelled several times, annoyingly. But the logistics that goes into arranging for somebody to have her daughter, now she's born here, she has four siblings, so it should be easy. But of course they have children, they have jobs. Yeah. And so for someone who has no network to ask for support and then to be to have your trust broken, actually, to trust your child, your most precious thing to somebody, and for them to potentially put them in harm's way, I, I, I think, yeah, I think I would feel very betrayed, actually, and not like I wanted to ever trust anybody again. Yeah, yeah. So since then, I I tried to contact her because, um, mm-hmm. yeah, I, I cannot trust her. I, that really uh, annoyed me. I guess really all that I would want to ask you now is is what advice you would perhaps have for anybody in your situation you know because you can't be the only one you can't be the only person that's in fact there's a woman at the school hello Vanessa if you're listening and um she met a guy online moved to America to be with him had children with him and he died so she then had to come back to the UK and live with her mum and dad. So a little bit different in that she came back, but the whole re- and, and people who have to have bodies repatriated. You know, I thought my husband's death was complicated, and then yeah, I'm you hear that other people, oh, the, the talking points I've written down here are sort of the loneliness, the isolation, the lack of support. You know, it, it's very very scary. Yeah, and doing that during the pandemic was definitely not easy. Oh, even worse, even worse. But you are here, and you are literally here to tell your tale because you have told your tale. And I and our listeners will be are very, very, very grateful because this is something I had no idea about. You know, I've never experienced this aspect of, of losing somebody, and I do relate to the vulnerability. I do. I, I was sort of felt like I was being circled a little bit by men in the early days, not in a good way either. And it was all and people would stop inviting me out and it's like because oh you're the single widow and I'm like I don't want anything to do with you big yeah. fat Barry that's but it was it, it the whole concept of widowhood is, is isolation and this is what we want to do here is create this tribe and network and you are now part of our tribe you I mean you were always part of the tribe um and I hope very much that you might make it to Woodstock this year uh, we're still hoping to go ahead and um and stay in touch. You have my number. Stay in touch. Okay. This is not the end. We don't say goodbye here and, and never speak again. You will. You'll get your. <laughs> all right. With the, the bond that is made during these conversations, it's um, it's there's something special. 
So for now, I, I'm going to say goodbye, but it is just for now. And I will definitely be in touch again. Thank you for being brave enough to come on. Thank you very much for and, the chance to tell my story. <laughs> sorry, it took so long to get there. Um, and for our listeners, I know that many of you are still battling so much. And I just want you to know that you are, as I've just said to Jenny, you're part of the tribe and reach out. We're here. Okay. Take care, everybody. Lots of love.